Okay, I want you to raise your hands if you um, remember owning 45 records. <laughs> yeah, 78, some of you 78. Uh, that was even before my time. I had a few 78s, but they were like spoken word kinds of things. Um, raise your hand if you uh, once had an 8-track tape player in your car, right? And... Uh, raise your hand if you still listen to cassettes when you drive. It's a couple, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but where do we mostly keep our music now? Yeah, it's either on an iPod or something like that, or it's on your phone, right? Everything is digital now. So when we think about where you keep your, your music now, your playlist, so most of us, or a lot of us anyway, have some kind of electronic device that we have music on. Um, I have probably... 6,000 songs on my phone, and every kind of music you can imagine on my phone. Because there are times when you want to listen to something, you're in a certain kind of mood, and you want to listen to a certain kind of music. How many of you have something on your phone or your iPod music-wise that you'd be embarrassed for people to know you have? Hey, <laughs> God. I know Ricky's got some One Direction. I know he's a big <laughs> One Direction guy. I I know that Emil has Miley Cyrus as Hannah Montana on his. Justin Bieber, some Justin Bieber, yeah. I know Sally's got some NWA she likes to listen to. Um, but we all have different tastes, right? And, and whatever your mood is, you, you want to play a certain kind of music. I have the most eclectic mix of music on my, on my phone that you can imagine. I have tons of classical music. I have tons of worship music. I got all kinds of classic rock I have jazz, I've got big band music, lots of big band music. I have every kind of music you can imagine. And at different times, I want to listen to different things. And so you can create playlists, right? You can create playlists like this is a party playlist, this is a driving playlist. I have songs that I like just for when I'm making a long drive, like a two, three-hour drive, there's driving music. I don't know, you have driving music, don't you? Yeah, and you usually get... Uh, tickets when you play your driving music and you go across because it's all like pounding stuff. Um, but it all sort of depends on your mood. Um, if the Bible had been initially given to us in a digital form, even though a lot of us have it now in a digital form, but <clears throat> if, if it had come out in a digital form, the Psalms would be the playlist. The Psalms would be your music files, right? That the Psalms are the, the great songs of the nation of Israel. They're the worship songs of the nation of Israel, like a hymn book for Israel. And whatever your take on the Psalms, um, not everybody looks at them the same. There are some people who just love the Psalms. There are some people that if they're going to open their Bible and do some devotional reading, they are going to read the Psalms. If you are a person who loves to read poetry, you probably love the Psalms. If you're a person who listens to, let's say, Barry Manilow and Air Supply, then probably you're into the Psalms. If you, if you have some of Shakespeare's sonnets memorized, then you're probably into the Psalms. If, if, um, if you don't mind missing the sermon on Sunday mornings, but you hate missing the singing time, then I don't like you, but <laughs> you probably like the Psalms. On the other hand, there are some people who just feel like, I don't really relate to the Psalms that much. Um, if you have never read a poem that was not assigned to you in school, then chances are you probably don't like the Psalms. If, if, um, 
you make a point to show up just in time for the sermons because all of this music and singing stuff is just not your cup of tea, then you probably don't like the Psalms. But the Psalms are the um, very, very powerful way that God communicates to us in His Word, and the Psalms were the worship music that they used in those days. In fact, they're still the worship music that we use today. It's amazing how many of these songs we sing, we got all of these instruments and all this modern technology and all this modern music, but the truth of the matter is that probably 75% of the worship songs we sing are derivatives from the Psalms. They just come right out of the book of Psalms. And so the Psalms are pretty, pretty important to us, but whatever your take on Psalms, there's a lot we can learn from them. Today is going to be kind of an unusual situation. We have been in this sermon series called Can You Hear Him Now? And we've been doing this for about the last six or seven weeks. Today is the final message in that Can You Hear Him Now? series. At the same time, it is the first message in the next series. So it's kind of like a bridge. Today's sermon is designed to help us sort of put a bow on what God has been telling us about how to hear his voice and communicate with him, and then at the same time to sort of catapult us into what we're going to be doing next. And we're going to just be doing this briefly. There's 150 psalms, but I have some favorites. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at my favorite playlist in the psalms. And we're just going to take the next few weeks, and we're going to hit several psalms, and then we'll do some other stuff, and then later on we'll come back, we'll hit some more psalms, and we'll just periodically revisit this thing where we keep looking at psalms and seeing what God has to tell us. So um, we're going to start that, that sermon series today. At the same time, we're ending the last sermon series today. Now, we're going to start in Psalm chapter 1. So take out your Bibles. You brought Bibles. Open a Psalm chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, um, look on with somebody, or you probably have one on your phone or something. Bring it up however you can, because you're going to need it. We're going to be all over the place in the Word today. But we're going to start in Psalm chapter 1. And when it comes to hearing God's voice, as we recap this last series, is when it comes to hearing God's voice, there's all kinds of ways that God can speak to us. If you've been paying any attention during these last several weeks, you've got that straight by now. God is still speaking today. He speaks powerfully today. And He speaks most powerfully and most clearly and most obviously through His Word. The Word of God is the most foundational thing we could ever have when it comes to understanding what it is God has to say to us today. And one of the reasons for that is because it's black and white. It is clear. There's not so much of a subjective sense. Now, there are some people who, who read into the Word what they want to hear, but if you're reading the Word for what it is, then you're going to be hearing God's Word to you in your life today. And it doesn't matter if you're in Jeremiah or Job or 1 Kings or Deuteronomy. Wherever you are, you're going to be hearing the Word of God when you read the Bible. And so I, I emphasize the Word of God as often as I can, as carefully as I can. I want to make sure that we know that with our Bibles, we have an incredible gift that God has given to us, and we can hear from Him through the Word. But we also talked in this series about another way that God speaks to us, and that is that He speaks to us through other people. And a lot of times, God will... Um, put us in contact with somebody who will give us the encouragement that we need when we need it. A lot of times God will put us in contact with somebody who will give us a word of admonition when we need it. We need to get our lives changed and, and they'll come along and bump us in the right direction. Um, there, there will be times when people will give us advice that we need, help us think through issues from a godly perspective. And a lot of times God will use other people um, to speak to us. But 
the problem is that the Bible and other people are not exactly on the same level when it comes to how trustworthy they are, right? Now, I'm going to put a picture up. How many of you remember owning one of these? Right? Did you get used to have those, right? Um, when I was in high school and college, I worked as a courier. So I worked for a bank and I worked for an escrow company. And my job was, in those days, nothing was ever sent digitally, right? So you had to actually take papers from one place to another and get them signed and bring them back. And that's what I would do as a courier. So I would go all around Southern California doing this work for these banks. And, and I had to know the roads. So in my car, I had a Thomas Guide for Orange County. I had a Thomas Guide for Los Angeles County. I had a Thomas Guide for San Bernardino County. I had a Thomas Guide for Riverside County. I had the Thomas Guide for uh, San Diego County. I had a Thomas Guide for Ventura County. All of these Thomas Guides just stacked up literally in the front seat of my car. They sat next to me because I got so adept at using a Thomas Guide that I could be doing 65 miles an hour on the freeway, on my way somewhere, flipping through a Thomas Guide at the same time. Somehow I survived. I, I don't recommend it. But those Thomas Guides were invaluable to me in those days because there was no way to know where you're going unless you had a good map, right? Obviously, that's changed. But there was, I became so familiar with those maps that after a while, most of the time, I didn't need them. Most of the time, I knew where the roads were. Most of the time, I knew where the workarounds were when there was too much traffic and you needed to get off the freeway and get around it. Most of the time, I had it in me because I had spent so much time reading and studying those maps that it just got within me. And that's what happens with the Word of God. As we read the Word of God, it just gets within us. And even when we're not sitting down and reading it, we can still have God speaking to us from His Word because we treasured it in our hearts, right? because we're remembering what we've learned, and it guides us in the moment. And that's the beauty of God's Word, is that it is so true and so right and so powerful and so trustworthy. And the longer we um, subject ourselves to it, the longer we, we spend time in God's Word, the more we come to know it. But people are not so much like that. If you're, if you're on the road and you need to go somewhere and you have a map, that's great. But there are some times and some places where even a map is not going to help you. What you need is somebody who knows how to get there, right? And they can give you directions. But better yet, if you can get someone who knows how to get there who will go with you, then they sit in the passenger seat and they tell you where to go. I don't know if you've ever driven down in Mexico, but it's always a hoot for me when I drive down in Mexico. Um, every time I go down there, there's always this need to get from point A to point B, but maps are not helpful. Because many of the streets are not marked, there are not street signs. Once you get off the main highway, you're just lost and you just have to find your way. And if you ask a local how to get there, they will say to you something like, you're going to go a little ways until you see a big rock. And the second street after the big rock, you're going to turn left. And you're going to keep going until you see the dead dog. And you turn right at the dead dog. And that's how it is. And that's how you get where you're going in Mexico. And every time when I'm down there, if I have the option, I want a local to go with me in the car because I want somebody who can give me directions if I can't find the dead dog. If I don't know which rock they're talking about, I need somebody who can give me directions. And so by providing for us not only his word and obviously his Holy Spirit to guide us from within, 
but also other people who can influence us. God gives us all of these different ways that he can help us to get where we're going. And if I am continuously connected to the Bible, and if I'm continuously connected to God's people, chances are I'm going to have the information that I need to get where God wants me to go. So the Bible's like a good map, always gets it right. The problem with people, though, is we don't always get it right. Even well-meaning people can lead you astray, right? Have you ever had that happen? Somebody gives you advice, and they care, and they're trying, and they're giving you based on the information they have, but once you think about it, you realize it was terrible advice. So this happened to me this week. Um, Yesterday, we have men's Bible study here on Saturday mornings. There have a bunch of guys here, and and what happens at men's Bible study... um, is as guys are showing up at the beginning, we, we just sit around and chat about stuff that guys are interested in, like scrapbooking and knitting and things like that. And we talk about that kind of stuff. Uh, no, we talk about sports usually. And uh, yesterday we we're talking about college football because it was Saturday morning, there's a bunch of games coming up. And um, there was a big college football game. A University of Utah was playing some little school in LA. I don't remember who they were, some school, but but Utah was playing them, and uh, Utah is one of the best teams in the country this year. They're undefeated. Um, they're ranked third in the country. They've been crushing great opponents, and they look like they're unbeatable. And they're playing against USC, and USC is having a terrible year. If you don't follow any of this, their head coach just got fired. Their program is in shambles. They're losing games to bad teams. They just look awful. Their whole program is in chaos right now, which, of course, breaks my heart. (laughs) And um, so I was uh, watching ESPN, and it said that the Utah-USC game was going to be coming up and that USC was favored by three and a half points. And I scratched my head. I said, how is this possible? This is the number three team in the country playing a terrible USC team, But USC is favored by three and a half points. Why would they be favored? And we're talking about this at the men's um, Bible study before we got to the Word yesterday. And we came up to a conclusion. I said, listen, here's the deal. Um, For whatever reason, there are USC fans all over the world, right? And also, coincidentally, the Scripture says that Satan is the prince of this world. So I don't know if there's a connection to that. But anyways, there are USC fans everywhere. And where are the Utah fans? There's like six of them in Utah, right? That's it. University of Utah has almost no fans because if you are a Mormon football fan living in Utah, you're a BYU fan. And nobody follows the University of Utah. And the few people in Utah that follow the University of Utah and will call themselves fans are probably very conservative people and they don't gamble. So everybody's gambling on USC, everybody's betting with their hearts on USC, and nobody's betting on Utah, and so USC is favored. Are you following me? Some of you you guys elbow the lady next to you, she's asleep now, okay? But stay with me, all right? So USC is favored when everybody knows Utah's the better team this year. And so I said, we should have like this whole plan. We should all go find a bookie and we should all bet on Utah to beat USC, and then we would take the money that we make from that, we could build like a a new wing on the church, right? This is good. This is just like 
brilliant. Anybody who has a brain in their head should be betting on Utah. So the game comes on yesterday, and USC destroys them, wipes them out. I mean, it wasn't even close. USC made them look terrible. And you just go, oh my gosh, is this like a sign of the end of the world? How could this be? But here's the deal. Just imagine that all the guys in the room had taken me seriously, and they went and bet their rent money on, U- on Utah yesterday. As, as, as it is, when I got here and guys started showing up this morning, I had five different guys accost me and say, boy, I'm sure glad I didn't take your betting tip. Man, what if they had? I would have probably lost my job. I would have been in deep trouble. But that's the point. Like, I have a reasonable amount of knowledge about college football. I understood why, the, why it was an anomaly. I knew that smart people would be betting on Utah. If I was somebody who bet on football games, I would have bet on Utah. And yet, I was wrong. You can get advice from people who it seems like they should know, and still they can be wrong. Our relationships are super important because the people who get to speak into our lives have an impact. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. If you don't know where the book of Psalms is, just shut your Bible and open it to the middle. You'll probably be in the book of Psalms. And go to Psalm chapter 1. Now, I want to say that a couple weeks ago in our series on hearing God's voice, we looked at Psalm 1 just briefly. We were talking about this whole subject of God speaking through other people. We briefly looked at Psalm 1, and we saw that this is one of the ways that God can speak to us. And it was really that week in my study that I started thinking, I really want to teach this psalm, and I really want us to, to look at some of these psalms that have so much depth in them. And that's why I'm coming back to this. So I know we touched on this a couple weeks ago, but I want us to look at it more closely today. So we're in Psalm chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. Six, six verses is the whole psalm. Let me read it to you. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment." nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We look at there at verse 1, it's pretty interesting because there's like a progression. I don't know if you notice it, but there's a progression in verse 1. He talks about who we walk with, who we stand with, and who we sit with. And all of them have different words for bad guys, right? The wicked, sinners, scoffers. He says, be careful not to walk with the wicked. Be careful not to stand with sinners. Be careful not to sit with scoffers. That's a pattern. It starts with a loose connection. Think of this. The people that you walk with, the people that as you go through life and you're walking through life, they come in and out of your life. They're acquaintances, people that you meet, people that you know but you're not really close with. They're just people that you walk with, right? And those people come into your life and they can influence you in one way or another. And of course, you can influence them in one way or another, right? But those are just kind of your acquaintances. But when you stop walking and you stand with people, 
These are the people that become your friends. These are the people that are your relationships. These are the people that you spend time with who influence you and, and you pay attention to. And then he goes further than that and he says, um, and don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Sitting. This is who you make your home with. This is, this is the inner circle of people in your life. These are the people that have the direct influence on, they're the kind of people that you go to and ask for their advice. The kind of people who when they say something or they do something or they become interested in something, you do too. The kind of people that you would not want to be without. That if you go a week or so without talking to this person, you want to at least text them or call them or see how they're doing because, because it just doesn't feel right if you're not close. There's only a few people like that in most of our lives. They're, they could be our family, our closest friends, maybe, maybe a really close coworker, somebody we spend a lot of time with. This are the people that he's talking about that we sit with. And he says there is this progression that you can uh, walk with people. Out of that group of acquaintances that you walk with, there are going to be some people that you stand with, that you actually spend time with, and you actually let influence you. And then there are going to be other people that you sit with, that you plant your life with, and they're a part of you, and you're a part of them, and they're absolutely key in your life. And he says, be careful, because these people that you end up sitting with, where did they come from? They came from the group of people that you were standing with. And where do those people come from? They came from the group of people that you were walking with, right? And so we need to be careful as we're choosing our relationships, how do we go about doing that? There's another example of this in the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 13. First book, Old Testament, book of Genesis. As you're turning to Genesis 13, let me just set the stage for you because this is the story of Abraham. At this point in Genesis, he's still known as Abram, and he's been called by God to follow God to wherever God leads him, and God says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you, but you're going to have to leave what you have behind, and you're going to have to go to a new place and follow me. And when Abram sets out to follow God in obedience, he takes with him his wife, and he has no children, but he takes his nephew with him, whose name is Lot. Lot is Abram's nephew, and the reason he takes him is because Abram's brother is dead. And Lot, as the brother, has a, I mean, Abram, as the brother, has a responsibility to raise Lot as his own son. So Lot is not his son, but he takes care of him like a son, even though Lot is a grown man. And so they leave together. And when they leave together, God begins to bless them as they obey him. And of course, their businesses flourish. And what business are they in? They're in the herdsman business. So they have flocks of sheep, flocks of goats, herds of cattle, and they have all these people that work for them. And as God blesses them, they get more and more animals, more and more people. And pretty soon there's this gigantic, it's almost like a whole city of people everywhere they go. And they're nomadic and they're moving from place to place and it becomes impractical. Their, their employees start fighting with one another. They start disputing over whether the, this flock belongs to me or this flock belongs to you. And it comes to the point where they say, it's just not practical for us to stay together. Let's separate. And so Abram says to Lot, you pick what direction you want to go. And Lot picks his direction. And that's where we find it in chapter 13, verse 10 of the book of Genesis. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan. And it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. 
So Lot chose for himself all the valleys of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Let's stop there. So we have this situation. Abram and Lot are going to split. Lot looks out and he sees this well-watered valley. And as a guy who makes his living by raising animals and then selling them, he says, a well-watered valley is the right place for me to be. So he heads down to the valley. Of course, in the valley is this city called Sodom. And Sodom already by this time has a reputation for wickedness. In fact, when it mentions Sodom, it can't even mention Sodom without saying, yeah, it's that Sodom, the one where all of the people are wicked. They can't stand God. They work against God in everything that they do. They're a, they're a completely wicked society. And so he goes down there. Now, here's the thing with Sodom. It may be wicked, but it's profitable. It's right on the trade route. Everybody that goes through that area goes through Sodom. It, it's like, um, it, it's like a, a, a Mecca, a business center in the middle of nowhere and so if you're going to conduct business, if you want to make a living, you need to be somewhere near Sodom. He knows the people are wicked, so what does he do? He wants to make money, but he doesn't want to live in Sodom where all the people are wicked. So it says that he moved his tents as far as Sodom. Instead of moving into the city, he lived in tents outside the city along the road. And it was there that he conducted his business. And that's how Lot set up his life, and he continued to make a lot of money. Now, you just go one more chapter to chapter 14. Very little time has passed, but one of the things that has happened now is that there's been war, and the city of Sodom has basically been overrun, and the people have been captured. And Abram hears about this, and he knows that Lot has been captured with the people of Sodom, and so he goes to rescue them, and we're getting that story in, verse, in chapter 14. But I want you to notice chapter 14, verse 12. These people, these people who raided the city, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. In chapter 13, knowing the wickedness of the people, it says he set up tents outside the city. But by the time we get to chapter 14, he is living in the city. And we don't know the circumstances. We don't know why he moved to the city. We don't know what went into his thinking. But, we, you know, they were living in tents. And so if there's, a, if there's a beautiful city, I'm sure his wife was saying, hey, I was in the city today. There's new condos for sale. We're living in tents. What are we doing? There was whatever went into his decision, he decided to move into Sodom. And now they're living in Sodom in chapter 14. Now let's go five more chapters to chapter 19. Chapter 19 What's happening at the beginning of chapter 19 is that God is finally going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to wipe them off the face of the earth, and he wants to rescue Lot. So he sends two angels who appear to be men, and he sends them to the city, and he, they're going to go and rescue Lot. So they're going into the city, and we pick it up in 19.1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And it goes on and tells the terrible story of the destruction of the city of Sodom and what happens to Lot and his family. And you can read that on your own if you haven't read it before. But the thing I want to point out to you is look what it says in verse 1. 
Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, if you're not familiar with, um, you know, biblical customs, you may not recognize the significance of that statement. First, he set up tents outside the city. Now he's living in the city. And by the time we get to chapter 19, he is sitting in the gate of the city. Why is that important? It's important because the men who sit in the gate of the city are the city elders. They're like the city council. The the gate of the city is the place where you go, where if you have a dispute and you need your case solved, you go and the elders in in the gate of the city will hear your case and make a decision for you. This was also the way they handled their immigration policy. They had the decision makers right there at the gate so that if there were undesirable people that wanted to get in or criminals that they were trying to chase down that wanted to get out, they could handle all of that. They were the legal system right there in the gate of the city. So what does this tell us about Lot? He went from being with Abraham to putting tents outside the city of Sodom to living in the city of Sodom to being on the city council of Sodom. At the time that Sodom was known as the most wicked city in the history of the world, Lot was one of their leaders. How did that happen? And then if you keep reading, you realize... Not only is the city destroyed, but Lot's whole family and his whole life get destroyed as a result of these decisions that he made. How did it happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It never happens like this. You don't go from, I'm living my whole life to praise Jesus. Everything I have is for God. My whole life is focused on God. He's everything to me. All the way over to, I'm a Satan worshiper overnight. That doesn't happen. How does it happen? How do you go from being dedicated to the Lord to caught up in the world? One compromise at a time. One step at a time. You go from being with Abram to tents that are outside of Sodom to living in Sodom to being in the center of the junk of Sodom. And you do it one step at a time. And oftentimes, it's about who influences you, who you walk with, who you stand with, who you sit with. Your relationships matter. This is how a lot of kids in the inner cities get involved in gangs. It's not that their parents raise them up and say, hey, why don't you go join a gang? That's not what happens, is it? How does it happen? It happens because they look out the windows of their little protected house or apartment where, they're, where they have a parent or a grandparent or somebody raising them, and they see the streets around them, and they know kind of the atmosphere that they're living in. It's their neighborhood. They know it, but they're not a part of it, right? But as they get older and they start going off to school and all that kind of stuff, what happens? They gradually become attracted to either friends that are in that lifestyle or they get caught up in it somehow. And little by little, they don't jump from, I'm just a kid who's minding my own business and doing my homework to being a kid who's in the middle of a gang. That doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen in one step. It happens gradually. You go to make some friends with guys that are in the gang. And then you realize that there are some things to be gained by being friends with guys in the gang. And they begin to influence the way that you think and the way that you act and the way that you look at life. And then they start giving you some opportunities to go just do this one little task for me, deliver this little package for me. Hey, just stand lookout for me over here. You're not really in the gang, but it's kind of cool because you're part of it now and you feel like they've got your back. And eventually you get jumped into the gang. And once you're a member of the gang, you can't get out. And then you scratch your head and you go, what happened? What happened to that kid? You know how many times that story has been multiplied in big cities around the country? 
again and again and again. And it happens little by little, and it happens through the influence of people. So we have to be intentional about choosing our relationships. How are you going to go about choosing the people that you're going to sit with, the people you're going to stand with, even the people that you're going to walk with? And, and I want to take a second here, and I just want to comment because I'm always so frustrated with the Christian church and the way we, we love to go to extremes. Because, because there are a lot of Christians out there who say, man, there's just so much evil in the world. There's just so many bad people out there. I don't want to be influenced by all that. I don't want my kids to be influenced by all that. I'm just going to like build a fort around me, and I'm never going to get involved with any of those bad guys because the bad guys are bad, and I don't want them to get rubbing off on me and my family. And we begin to look at the world as though we're supposed to have nothing to do with the people of the world. But is that true? No, it's not true. Let's take Jesus for an example. Go to Matthew chapter 9, first book, New Testament, book of Matthew. Now, Matthew is the one that's telling us this version of the gospel, and he's including the story of how he came to become a follower of Jesus. We're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 9, and I know it says verse 10, but let's go back to verse 9. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, Matthew, the tax collector, good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. If we're going to give him a label, he gets the little, the little pitchfork, not the little halo. He's a bad guy. He's a criminal. He's a traitor to his people. He is hated by the Jews. He steals from people, and that's how he's become wealthy. He's a bad guy. But Jesus calls him anyway, and this bad guy begins to follow Jesus, and a transformation begins to take place in his life. And what is the first thing they do once Matthew starts following Jesus? They throw a party at Matthew's house, and they invite the people Matthew knows. When you're a bad guy, what kind of people are you close with? Bad guys. So they invite the bad guys. This is who comes to the party. Verse 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What does Jesus say about having relationships with bad guys? He says, that's the reason you're here. That's the reason he came. I didn't come to just hang out and have this little holy huddle with a bunch of people who all agree with me about everything and worship God the way I do. I actually came because there are people who are lost and dying without Christ, and I need to influence those people. And he says to us, you're supposed to do the same thing. He tells us to influence them. In fact, Paul goes on further in 1 Corinthians. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, Paul is writing um, to the Corinthians, and this letter is called 1 Corinthians, which would give us the idea that this is the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. However, it's not the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. It's just the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians that made it into the Bible. So we call it 1 Corinthians, even though there were previous letters that he wrote, and we know that because he refers to those letters in this letter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So he had told them, stop associating with bad guys. Don't associate with immoral people. And then he says in verse 10, I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. He says, don't think that because you're a Christian, you're not supposed to have anything to do with people who are not Christians. Of course you are. You'd have to leave the planet if you weren't going to be around people who are not Christians. But he goes on, he says, verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person. He goes on and lists the things he might do. For, that, uh, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those who are within the church, or do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So what he's saying is, hey, let's, let's keep an eye on ourselves in the church. Let's watch one another. Let's spur one another on to love and good works. Let's not just put up with people in the body of Christ who are claiming to be our brothers and yet they're not following Jesus. Let's come alongside of them and help them to do that. But people outside the church, of course we need to be with them. How else are we going to share the love of Jesus with them? Jesus associated with all kinds of people, but there's the people you walk with, there's the people you stand with, and there's the people you sit with. Who did Jesus sit with? Twelve guys. Twelve guys who were called to be with him, who were committed to being with him, who had dedicated their lives to growing to be with him. Twelve guys, that's who he spent his time with. And in fact, that was his whole strategy for reaching the world. He knew that if I pour my whole life into these 12 guys, that they will be transformed because lives rub off on each other. And so he's saying the people that you devote yourself to, those are the ones that you need to be with. Have you, have you not found this to be true in your own lives? Have you, have you, if you look back the times that you were in school, did you ever fall in with the wrong crowd? Did you ever see how they influenced you? Or, or even working in a place where, where just it's a bad atmosphere and the people are just, they talk a certain way, they act a certain way, and they behave a certain way, and you find yourself becoming more like that? Boy, that's tough. God calls us not to let the world rub off on us, but to be light in a dark world. And so what do we do? Let me ask you this. When you turn to someone for advice... What kind of person is that? The people who have um, real influence in your life, what kind of person is that? The kind of person, the people that um, you ask for their opinion and they get to influence the way you think about things, are those people who are after God's own heart or are they people who are after the world system? Because whoever it is that you go to for advice, whoever it is that you feel like you fit in with, those are the people that you're going to sit with. Those are the people that are going to influence you the most. And I can't give you a rule. I can't say, listen, don't spend more than three hours a month with people who, who are worldly. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know how God is using you or how it should work for you. You're going to have to work that out with God and the Holy Spirit between you and Him. But here's the thing. We have to be honest with ourselves about this. All of us know that there are certain relationships that we can be in in life that drag us down rather than building anybody else up. You know what those relationships are. And you've got to ask yourself, how much longer am I going to keep sitting with people like that? 
Or is it time for me to distance myself from them? It very well could mean that there are some relationships that you're going to have to either distance yourself from and go back to this is the kind of person I walk with but not the kind of person I sit with. Or you might have to end the relationship altogether because it's so detrimental. And I can promise you this, if you do it, they will be mad. And you may need to do it anyway. You, you know, there's this old saying, it's hard to soar with the eagles when you're surrounded by turkeys, right? It's so true. We get to decide who's going to influence us to a great degree. And let me just give some practical advice as I wrap this up. Particularly to parents or anybody that's taking responsibility for raising up kids. Let me just tell you, if the signs are obvious that your children's friends are pulling them away and into a lifestyle that is not honoring to God, you can't put your head in the sand. You have to get involved. And I don't know what you do. It gets different in every situation. It's different depending on the relationship and the kid and all that kind of stuff. But if you know that your kid is beginning to get influenced by people who are pulling them away from God and it's getting worse, you're going to have to do something about it because if you allow your kids to just build those deeper relationships and start to trust in people who will draw them away from Christ, then they will draw them away from Christ. And I'm going to get even more... Um, intrusive into your life for a second. And I want to speak to those of you who are single. Whatever, you're young, old, whatever, if you're single, let me just tell you this. This kind of wisdom about choosing your friends applies to dating as well. Be very thoughtful about the people that you begin to give your heart to. Be very thoughtful about the people that you begin to throw in with and say, boy, I'm going to walk with this person. I'm going, to, I'm going to build something with this person. Because if that person doesn't love God, if that person is not going to help you grow in Christ, but they're going to draw you away from Christ, then you are going to suffer for it. Go back to Psalm 1 and we'll close. I want you to see how profound this is. Psalm 1 in verse 2. It's already said, be, be, you know, how blessed is a man who doesn't walk with the wrong kind of people, stand with the wrong kind of people, sit with the wrong kind of people. But verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. If you have a guide who has a great heart, who really wants to help you, but who doesn't know where they're going, they're still going to lead you astray, right? But the word of God will not meditate on the word of God. We're going back to that. And then look at verse three. If you do that, he will be like a tree that is firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Literally where it says streams of water, the literal word in the Hebrew means canals. It's man-made streams. It's irrigation, irrigation ditches, if you will. What he's saying is, Plant your life in a place where it's going to be consistently watered no matter what happens with the weather, and you will be strengthened. And so he, you will be strengthened if you do those things, but verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." 
this is serious. What's going to influence you? Is it going to be the Word of God and people who are wise in the Word of God? Or is it going to be a world system that is completely contrary to the Word of God? Is it going to be people who have rejected Christ and are, and are looking for ways to justify their own sinful behavior? Who's going to influence you? He says, you better choose carefully because the wicked perish and you will be influenced by those people. You want to hear God's voice? Get in God's Word and get with the right people. You'll never regret it. But here's a question I want to leave you with. By now, you know that you need to invest in healthy relationships. You know that you need to invest in the Word of God and getting it deep into your heart so that you know it. You know that you need to distance yourself from unhealthy relationships. You know that you need to filter what comes into your mind and goes down into your heart. You know all of this. We've been talking about this for two months now. You get it. I'm sure you do. So here's my question. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Is it enough to just nod your head and go, yeah, I should, I should choose my friends more carefully. I really should read the Word. You know what? I'm going to do better at that. Or do you actually take some steps and do something? If we'll do something, if we'll begin to make studying God's Word a normal part of our life so that His Word speaks to us and we get truth so that we recognize falsehood, if we'll begin to spend time and really sit with the kinds of people who we know can influence us for the greater good and honor of God, we're going to grow. But if we just nod our heads and say, that's a good idea, we're going to continue like Lot in a process of sliding down a slippery slope. And everything's on the line. So what are you going to do about it?